0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 7. We left off at verse 14 last week. If you're visiting with us, the vast majority of the time, we just spend our time working through books of the Bible. We're in the gospel of John chapter 7 this morning. As you're finding John chapter 7, I want to invite you and let you know that next Sunday evening, there's going to be the prayer walk at 5, but then at 6 o'clock, I will be here in the sanctuary uh, doing a little teaching on something that the elders are proposing that we do as a church, which is to update and adopt a new statement of faith, which isn't doesn't contain any new truth. But the statement of faith that we've had as a church since we started this church some 16 years ago is um, copied and pasted from the Gospel Coalition, which is a large. Sort of loose network of churches. Basically, it's just a resourcing hub, and it's a good statement of faith. I'm very grateful for it. But we have for some time felt the need to have something a little bit more precise that is a little bit clearer and easier to teach from. And so we are proposing that we adopt a a historic statement of faith that um, I am going to be talking to you about next Sunday night. And this will be a, a long process where we want you to understand our heart behind it, why we think it's important. And so I'll spend some time teaching through it, and then uh, eventually, um, after we have all the questions that you may have about it, sometime maybe, Lord willing, in the beginning of next year, we will, uh, Lord willing, adopt it as a congregation. So please come to that next Sunday evening at 6 p.m. Some passages in the Bible just jump out to you, and they, they, they jump out in the sense that, man, that'll preach. John 7, this is not one of those chapters necessarily. (laughs) You've read ahead, I'm glad. I think the point of John 7 is to give us a glimpse of the increasing mounting opposition to Jesus that will eventually culminate in his crucifixion on the cross. I think that's what Chapter seven is about, and we're breaking it down into some segments this morning. We're going to look at verses fourteen through twenty-four, and as we look at these two these two paragraphs in the middle of John seven, and as we work through the remainder of the chapter for the rest of the month, and as we see the subsequent conflict begin to intensify and mount. I just want to put a thought in the back of your mind as we see these things seemingly happen to Jesus, that ultimately we know that nothing merely happens to Jesus as if he is a passive victim. We know this because the rest of the Bible tells us, in fact, Acts chapter 2, after the day of Pentecost, in fact, on the day of Pentecost, when Jesus has ascended, the disciples are gathered, the Holy Spirit is poured out, the church is birthed. Peter stands up and he preaches his famous sermon and he says about this Jesus that we see here in John 7, dealing with increasing conflict and persecution and, 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 and skepticism. He says about this Jesus that he was delivered up, Acts two twenty three according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then he says, and you crucified him, He's speaking to the crowd, by the hands of lawless, you killed him by the hands of lawless men. So nothing's happening to Jesus. So as we work through this chapter, let's remember that. Now here's the flow to help us understand this text. I'm going to work through two paragraphs at a time. We're going to look at verses 14 through 19, stop and explain a little bit. Then verses 20 through 24, explain a little bit. And then I want to attempt with God's help, to apply this text to our lives, apply this scene in the middle of John chapter 7 to our lives. And to do that, I want to ask us three questions, because I think this is what's going on in this passage, that the crowd, specifically the Jewish religious leaders, are misjudging, they're misunderstanding who Jesus is and what he is doing. The conflict, most poignantly right now, is that Jesus has healed a man on the Sabbath back in John chapter 5. Remember the man the, who, was, who was an invalid for 38 years, couldn't get into this mysterious pool, and Jesus on the Sabbath heals this man, which according to the Jewish religious leaders' interpretation of the law was breaking the Sabbath. And so they're, they're wanting to, they're noticing that Jesus is gathering a following, and they're opposed to Jesus because of his law-breaking, at least in their minds, law-breaking of healing on the Sabbath. And the conflict's coming to a head. And that's what we're going to get into a little bit here in this passage. And so to to help us understand and apply this text, I'm going to ask three questions. How did the religious leaders, how were they misjudging Jesus? How were they doing that? Secondly, how do we misjudge Jesus? How are we prone to do that? And then thirdly, what's the solution? Okay, that's my plan. Let's, Let's read verses 14. Through about 19. About the middle of the feast, remember this is the Feast of the Tabernacles, an Old Testament feast that was commanded in the law to commemorate the harvest. There's all sorts of implications. <clears throat> you know, I listen to Martin Lloyd Jones. There's this little app called the Martin Lloyd Jones Sermon Trust or something along those lines. And he preached like 400 messages on John. <laughs> and he preached four or five messages just on verse 14 and the implicate yeah no really seriously and the implications of looking at the Old Testament feast of the tabernacles as to how it pointed to Jesus and I don't have time but if you don't have anything to do this afternoon I would love to just regurgitate to you what Martin Lloyd Jones shared with me in his sermon about the middle of the feast Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching so I remember his brothers wanted him to go but he said I'm going to wait And eventually he finds himself, he does go in verse 14. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Okay, let's pause there before we look at the remainder of the passage, verses 20 through 24, and let's summarize to make sure we understand what's going on. There is skepticism about Jesus in his teaching. He comes to the temple and he starts to teach and we read in other places in the gospel that are probably speaking of scenes like this that he spoke as one who had authority. And so that it's not like who's this guy? They they know sort of intrinsically that something Powerful's going on here and they're threatened by it and now it's kind of an ad hominem attack against Jesus because they can't refute his teaching and they're attacking what they believe to be his weakness that he didn't he wasn't trained at you know the 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 under the at the feet of some famous rabbi so how is it that this man uh, who's never really been instructed in our formal rabbinical schools can teach this way so there's skepticism And then, as any good teacher would do, and this was custom uh, for first century uh, Jewish teachers, they would always, when they taught, appeal to their teacher, kind of the school that they came from, so as to give credence to their teaching, to sort of identify yourself. Well, I'm from such and such university, so to speak, or I'm from here. Kind of give your curriculum vitae, so to speak, your, your spiritual resume, your license to preach, if you will. And Jesus does the same thing in verse 16. He says, look, this isn't isn't my teaching, but Jesus does something differently. He doesn't refer to some earthly rabbi. He says that this is coming from the one who sent me. Implicit in that is obviously God the Father. So Jesus is appealing to the ultimate authority, which is heaven, which is God himself. And then in verse 17, Jesus says that ultimately, he says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, if, if your heart is right, then you will know whether what I'm saying is from, from God or not. And Jesus is pointing, and we're going to get back to verse 17, because I think actually verse 17, if you put a note there, I think that's the key to understanding this text. And Jesus is telling us here that humility, a kind of heart posture, leads to spiritual understanding and discernment. And then he tells us that, that we, he can be trusted because he's not some charlatan. He's not out for himself. And this is really interesting. Basically, in verse 18, he says that people that are seeking their own glory, they're kind of in it for themselves, you know, that they, they should be doubted. But I'm not seeking my own glory, but the glory of the one who sent me. So therefore, there's no falsehood in what I'm saying. There's no lie in my mouth. I can be trusted, which is really quite ironic that the only one that was really worthy of all glory Jesus in the flesh is in his humility as a man actually not claiming any glory and wanting to point all to the lord with it just contrast contrast Jesus's ethos as an earthly teacher with the glory seeking preachers that that even fill pulpits today friends I just feel like it's part of my responsibility to help train you with discernment because we live in an age that is so uh, easily wooed by aesthetic and what looks good on the internet. Just because somebody has a good website or they're handsome or they're cute or they just can get a good filter and they can preach in front of crowd, just that it just reeks of self-glorification. And beware of those types of ministries and those types of preachers. And Jesus is going in the opposite direction here. He's wanting no glory. He's seeking no glory for himself, but glory for the one who sent him. And he sets up the conflict that we're going to get to here in the next verses by basically telling them, look, you have all disobeyed the law. Why are you seeking to kill me? And now verses 20 through 24. The crowd answered, so he just basically told them in verse 19, you, you, get, you have the law for Moses, but you don't keep it, not one of you. So why are you seeking to kill me? And the crowd answered him, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? They're incredulous. They don't understand what Jesus is getting at. Jesus answered them, verse 21, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Okay, now verses 22 through 24, a little bit hard. I'll, I'll break it down for you here, but let me read it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because... On the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well. Verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Okay, what's going on in verses 20 through 24? The crowd is incredulous. What are you talking about, Jesus? This man must have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? And in verse 21, he basically says in response to that, look, you're mad at me. You're suspicious of me. Because I did one work and you're marveling at it. What is Jesus referring to by that one work? He's referring to the conflict of the healing of the man in John 5, verses 1 through 18, I think it is, that we covered a few weeks ago in John, or maybe a few months ago in John 5, where he healed the man on the Sabbath who had been an invalid for some 38 years. And this began this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And so he's basically saying, your, 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 your teeth are grinding, you're, you're marveling, really you're frustrated with me you're criticizing me, you're suspicious of me because I healed this man on the Sabbath. Just one work. And what's going on when Jesus refers to what they're doing with circumcision and the Sabbath is he's pointing out a double standard. Okay, how is that? He's saying that Moses, meaning the Old Testament law, gave you this this prescription, this command of the Lord to circumcise your male infants on the eighth day. And ultimately, that is, He he says in parentheses there, that didn't just come through Moses. That was actually long before Moses with Abraham back in Genesis. But the point is, is that Moses through the law gave you this prescription of God to mark off yourself as a people by circumcising the male foreskin of an infant at eight days of age. And then Jesus points out their double standard. Follow me, because you need to get this in order to understand this passage. He's saying, look you're willing to follow the law of circumcision and actually perform that work on the Sabbath if that's when it falls. In other words, if a baby is born eight days before the Sabbath and then the law requires that this male child be circumcised on the eighth day and that happens to fall on the Sabbath, Jesus is saying, well, you're willing to do this work, so to speak, You're willing to break, in a sense, the law of the Sabbath by doing the greater work, in a sense, of circumcising this male child on the Sabbath. So why are you criticizing me if I'm healing a whole man's body on the Sabbath? Do you see what Jesus is pointing out here? He is putting his finger on the hypocrisy and the impossibility of getting your righteousness through following the law because we can't. Do you see that? How can you follow this law if you're getting your righteousness from the law when the law that you uphold is your righteousness, you're actually kind of breaking in a sense when you're following this other portion of the law and you're breaking this other portion of the law to to, to circumcise this, this baby. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? He's pointing out really the weakness of works-based righteousness that comes through the law. And that was never the intent of the law that we would follow it perfectly so that we could get to the end of it and say, aha, now we are righteous. Now, Lord, you must accept me into heaven. In fact, the whole point of the Old Testament is to bring about a kind of humility. Yes, to show us what is holy, to show us God's glory, but also to show us our need. Not so that we could, with every little nook and cranny, use it as a club, as a kind of religious self-righteous club over people And beat them over the heads for their law breaking so that we might prop ourselves up. And that's exactly what the Jewish leaders are doing. And Jesus, by healing a man on the Sabbath, is highlighting their religious hypocrisy. Do you see that? I think that's what's going on. And here's the striking irony. Just a little, little, little biblical theology before before we get into these three questions. Here's the striking irony of this. Is that the law that they were finagling to try and bring about their own sense of self-righteousness and also criticizing Jesus for doing essentially the very same thing that they were doing, breaking, in a sense, the law to circumcise this child on the eighth day, well, if they can do that, why can't Jesus do an even greater work to heal this man on the Sabbath? So, so they're finagling their, their interpretation of the law to prop up their own self-righteousness. And the striking irony is, is that the whole point of even the two laws that they're holding up are meant to point to Jesus. Look at how the New Testament interprets just this whole idea of Sabbath rest. Not that we would be these kind of clinical law abiders, merely to shut down every seven days, but it's ultimately pointing us to rest that is found in Jesus. In fact, Jesus says himself, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And in fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, I think the point that the author is making in Hebrews chapter 4 is that Jesus is our rest. When we trust in Jesus, we rest from our self-righteous, futile labor. And Jesus is our circumcision. Look at what Paul says in in Colossians chapter 2 verse 11 about Jesus, spiritualizing this idea of physical circumcision in the Old Testament. He says, in him, meaning in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So he's using the Old pict- Old Testament picture of physical circumcision and he's spiritualizing it, and he's making a point about it. And he's saying, this is what happened to you when you were born again, by the putting off of the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. And so what he's saying is in the gospel, Christ has cut away your old heart and has given you a new heart. And that's what circumcision means. So even these two things, These laws of Sabbath and circumcision that these religious leaders were trying to trip Jesus on are ultimately meant to point to Jesus, who's the one that gives us rest, who's the one that circumcises our heart spiritually and gives us a new heart. And now they're criticizing him for actually doing the greater work of healing a man on the Sabbath. So that's the scene. That's what's going on in the text. I hope I've explained it well. I hope you understand it. And you're saying, okay, Brad, thanks for the, for the Bible lesson. <laughs> what does this have to do with us? Because I've never faced a situation quite like this in my Monday through Friday. I understand. So three questions. How were they misjudging Jesus? How do we misjudge Jesus? And what's the solution? How, how were they misunderstanding? How were they missing him? I've hinted at it already. I think they missed Jesus. They misunderstood what he was saying. They were threatened by what he was saying because he was attacking in his person and work their system of self-righteousness. They had misunderstood the Old Testament law, and instead of letting it humble them and push them to humility in the Lord They were using it to prop themselves up as a kind of power structure over the people. And Jesus was a threat to their religious system. I think they also missed him because he wasn't fulfilling their faulty expectations of who they wanted him to be. We've alluded to this several times already in the Gospel of John, but we see these hints where the people seem to be disappointed with Jesus Because he wasn't immediately rescuing them from political captivity of their Roman captors. And so there was this frustration. When will you restore Israel in a kind of earthly sense to her former Old Testament glory? They were misunderstanding that Jesus ultimately and primarily was coming to give spiritual rescue that would certainly blossom into full, complete, physical, eternal, heavenly, forever rescue in the new heavens and the new earth. But they wanted Him to be an immediate political here and now Savior. And thus, because their hearts were not humbly receptive to what Jesus was saying, because He was threatening their religious power structure of self-righteousness, they not only misjudged him, but they wanted to kill him. The second question then is, okay, I see that, but how do we misjudge Jesus? How do we misjudge Jesus? Well, here's what I think is going on with the political leaders, and I think what's also going on with the, the religious leaders of Israel, and what's also going on with us, is that they, they were coming to him with an agenda. They had an agenda that he would not fulfill. In fact, he was threatening the agenda of their self-righteous structure. And we too, how do we then, how are we prone to misjudge Jesus? We too come to him with agendas. We want Jesus to improve our lives. We want him to give us a better 40 or 50 years. We, We want him to work out our situation and make us, we want to add him to our life as a kind of comfort giver and Jesus will not do that Jesus cannot be an add on to our lives he must be our life and only him so what's the solution how do we how do we fight Misjudging Jesus like these religious leaders in John chapter 7. How do we guard against this? Well, I think the key, as I mentioned, is in verse 17. Look at verse 17 again, where Jesus is speaking to them. They're, they're challenging him and they're saying, How is this man able to teach like this? He, he has no learning. He hasn't, he's, not, he's not a schooled man. And then he says in verse 16, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And then listen to what he says in verse 17. I think this is the key to the passage and the key to us. I think this verse is intended to guard us from misjudging Jesus as these religious leaders did that were listening to him. John 7 verse 17. Jesus says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So what's Jesus saying there? He's saying if, if your heart, if, you're, if, you're, if your posture, if your mind is humble, and you're not coming to Jesus with any preconceived agenda, you know, kind of like, Jesus, get me out of this jail that I've put myself into in this circumstance. Ultimately, he does get us out of judgment, of sin. But if we come to him with a kind of Jesus, do this for me and I will serve you, then we will ultimately be disappointed and we will be frustrated with him. But Jesus' point here in verse 17 is that if anyone will come to me and his will is to merely obey God, no matter where that takes me or what that looks like or what that is requ- what is required of me, then that person, he will know. God will meet him there. The Holy Spirit will illuminate his mind and his heart and he will know what I'm saying and he will understand who I am. It's coming to Jesus with a kind of Carte blanche, a kind of openness, nothing, no conditions, a, a blank check. Here's my life, Lord. Take it and do with it as you will. That's the solution. I think this text calls us to come to Jesus in a posture of humility and willingness. Now, I don't, I don't want you to get me wrong here. I think we come to Jesus with all sorts of requests. We come to Jesus with all sorts of burdens. We, we have the great privilege to do that. I think of Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Yes and amen. Do that. I'm not in any way advocating and saying that we should not come to the Lord asking anything. That's not what I'm getting at here. Yes I think of Jeremiah. I think it's maybe Jeremiah 33, 3 off the top of my head where he says, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and unsearchable things. We can come to him like a father. And what I'm, I I don't want you to take away from this text that you need to sort of in in a kind of overly introspective way be ultra critical of your motivations and you need these ultra pure motivations in coming to Jesus and that's the only time that you can actually meet Jesus and understand who he is. Because if we waited on being completely pure in our motives to come to Jesus, we would never come at all. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that that Jesus, in verse 17, is calling for a kind of humility, a kind of willingness to to go wherever his words take us, to, to listen to whatever he has to say, to obey, spay whatever comes out of his mouth. And because we are the most self-sufficient society in the history of civilization, we are kind of hardwired for a disadvantage to do that. We come to him with most of our needs met, and we basically want Jesus to tweak our lives so that they will be a little bit better. And that won't work is what I think verse 17 is telling us. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know if you come to me humble, open-hearted, willing, hands open, heart open, Bible open, willing to hear, willing to obey, then I will meet you there. You may be saying, okay, I agree with this on a sort of intellectual, spiritual level, but um, you're talking about the will, Brad, and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't want to want God. Has anybody ever been there? No, this is a safe place. Okay, is anybody? Okay, I'm I'm your pastor, Um, I'm a professional Christian, and um, I... Sometimes just, I don't, I don't even have the will. I mean, I know the right answer is verse 17. But sometimes you're like, I, okay, I get that. That is like, that, that's the right answer. But I'm living down here in the weak feebleness of my pathetic desires. And if I'm being honest, I really don't want to want to obey Jesus. Has anybody else been there? Okay. You know what? Here's the lie of the enemy. The lie of the enemy says, okay, well, go back and prep yourself until you're ready. Go back and fix it. Come back when your heart is ready. Come back when you've got enough strength. Come back when you're cleaned up. Come back when you got some want to in you. But friends, the gospel turns that upside down. He doesn't meet you because you have some measure of oomph in you. See, here's the trick. Here's the beautiful gospel paradigm. Not that you need to muster up the will to come, but that you say, I don't want to come, but here I am still. That's a legitimate prayer. In fact, I think that's the prayer he answers. Because anything short of that utter humility where we can say, God, I want you, but I admit that I don't always want you. It's the same prayer that the man prayed in Mark chapter 9 when he brings his son to Jesus. And Jesus says, do you believe that I can do this? And he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. I want you, I think, but most of the time I don't want you. I want to obey you, but I have trouble actually obeying you. That's a good place to be. If you're there, walk towards Jesus, not away from him. Because if the devil lies to you and you go back with this assignment that you've got to get to some place before you can come back, you will never come back. But the good news of the gospel is his grace, his meeting you doesn't depend on anything in you. Will you come? That's it. That's it. That's it. I end with this, a wonderful prayer from a famous preacher in English and American history. John Wesley, who is credited with the founder of modern Methodism now, I have great respect for John Wesley. Uh, There are things that I would disagree with about his theological perspective on critical issues, but he was a wonderfully fruitful and godly man. And he had this famous prayer called John Wesley's covenant prayer that he prayed every year. And I think it encapsulates the posture that we need to have when we come to Jesus. And as I read this prayer, you may be thinking, okay, Brad, I get John Wesley, this wonderfully fruitful preacher in America back in the 1700s. He did all this stuff. That's not me. I, don't even, I mean, I, I, I think I agree with what John Wesley's saying here, but I don't even have heart friends. Confess. Confess that you need, that you want. Lord, I want to want you. That's a legitimate prayer. I want to say these things to you. That's a legitimate prayer. Let's read. Let me read what John Wesley wrote. He said, I am no longer my own but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee, or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which I made on, heaven, made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. I think that's what verse 17 is calling us to say, even if we don't feel like we can say it. Lord, I'm coming to you now with no agenda. Yes, I want my kids to grow up and achieve. Yes, I, I want a I promotion. Yes, I want all these are wonderful requests to be made known to God. Bring it to the Lord. But verse 17, Jesus is calling us deeper. Lord, I I will not seek my own glory. I'm tired of running the rat race of seeking the approval of men and women. I want to hear your words because you have the words of eternal life. I need to hear from you. I need to be satisfied in you. I need to know you. I need to know what you're saying. I need to open my Bible and I need to commune with you. I want to follow you. And I confess that there are parts of my flesh that resist that prayer, even now as I'm saying it. But nevertheless, I come. Do with me as you will and give me the strength to obey. Lord, do that, I pray. Do that for me. Do that for my friends in this room that don't know you. And do that for my brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen.